Hello, listeners. My name is John Hendren, and you're listening to our podcast entitled BachCast. This is episode 57, which is focused on Bach's Dorian Toccata and Fugue for Organ. So we just heard uh, the opening of the fugue, Toccata and Fugue. Um, And this is an interesting uh, subject. It sort of is uh, a long subject with uh, not a lot of uh, fast activity, which is a great contrast to the opening, which we'll listen to uh, in just a little bit. The Toccata is all about like continuous uh, 16th notes just going throughout. It's just perpetual uh, motion forward. And this one's sort of more of a, ooh, let's, let's, let's breathe a little bit. It always reminds me this theme, and I don't know why I have this association, but uh, because of the, of the sort of uh, the jumps and the, the long notes, I always think of something like looking over uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, just big, wide, um, and Bach is sort of setting us up, right? He's got this somewhat uh, esoteric-sounding uh, theme that is not real melodic. Uh, but as you can almost forecast, if you've listened to enough Bach, uh, that that theme is probably going to give us some interesting harmonies as it gets treated. So before we get into the details of this piece, uh, and by the way, this clip was from Tan Kutman, uh, one of my favorite um, keyboard players, especially of box music. This is an early, uh, earlier recording of, of his. This was released in a um, uh, special, what I call premium priced uh, pack of box keyboard music. It came out in 1984, but some of the recordings go back as far as the late 70s. And they packaged uh, recordings by Trevor Pinnock and Tan Koopman together. And this was a, a collection on the Archive Production label, which is an imprint of Deutsche Grammophon. And it was a silver um, three-CD set. And I remember, I remember seeing, it on, seeing it on the shelf at the, at the record store and think, gosh, I want to spend all this money. It was like... like Full priced. I don't know why I have this association. It was, you know, it was like, you know, it was it was not cheap. Um, and I remember seeing it gleaming at me because it's in this special silver packaging. It wasn't their typical packaging. And the uh, the image on the front wasn't one of their paintings or something that they usually did. It was just box portrait. Uh, it looked authoritative. Um, and so when I got it, it was like, oh wow, there's 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 a good collection. It's like kind of like his best hits. Uh, Tom Koopman also had, uh, this may have been, I'm going on my memory here, this may have been re-released as a single CD, I can't remember, but Tom Koopman also had a Toccata and Fugue uh, CD. I remember seeing organ pipes on it, 
sort of like a drawing or something. Uh, there was a lot of yellow or maybe orangish on it. And this may have been released as a single CD as well. I don't know uh, if that was the same recording or not. But we typically, typically don't think of Tan Kutman with Deutsche Grammophon Archive Production, but evidently in the very early 80s he had an association with that, um, that outfit, and uh, that's where that recording comes from. But what is a toccata and a fugue? Um, a fuga, uh, as Bach sometimes wrote, these are, uh, we haven't really explored uh, Bach's organ works. Um, uh, we've played lots of stuff for the keyboard, the, the harpsichord. We've played, uh, as you guys know, a lot of the violin music. Um, and more recently, uh, we, we took a look at um, the solo violin music. So the organ music, there, there, it's a lot of music. Uh, if you record it all, it's a lot of CDs. It's, it's you know, between like a 10 to 14 CD project if you set out to record it all. And uh, if you had done this in maybe 1970 and you did it again in 2000, you likely would have had more things to play because there have been uh, additional pieces identified. Um that are believed to be by Bach. And there's some pieces in there, like really famous pieces, like the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, BWV 565, uh, that some people th doubt that is actually by Bach. And that's, of course, a big uh, uh, ongoing debate, whether he was the originator of that piece or he played it. Or um, It's kind of interesting because it's a very famous piece. It's recognizable. People like it. However... Some people say it's, it's just too simple for the great mind, Johann Sebastian Bach. This piece is a little different. This is also a Toccata and Fugue in D minor, but it goes by this nickname Dorian. And I'll just take a moment to explain the modes. Uh, modes in music sort of determine the flavor, if you will. We might also call them scales. Um, if we were talking, let's say, about uh, Indian music, uh, and I mean India, the country, and, and their history, they had these these complex scales that a piece would be built upon. Uh, and in our musical tradition, uh, from Western music, uh, there's also this tradition, although, quite frankly, for most of, the, most of the Baroque period, we weren't exploring any of the modes beyond the two major modes. And I shouldn't have said major modes, because... We call one of those modes the major mode. Uh, we also call one the minor mode. So when we say, you know, symphony number six in G major, that's basically telling you the mode. And for those of us that have grown up around a keyboard, to play the G major scale, you start on G and you go up to the G above it, the octave up above it. And if we're in the key of G, we have a sharp. We know that when you play in the key of G, you have a sharp. Well, adding the sharps and the flats shows you that we are sort of changing the mode a bit. Because if we were to go from G to G and not play any of the black keys on the keyboard, we would no longer be in the major major mode. And so one way to think about these modes, especially, again, if you have an association with a, with a piano keyboard, is to start from C. Let's do, that's, you know, everybody knows C is easiest key because there's no sharps or flats. Uh, no black keys, right? So we would go from C and up to C. We'd play a scale. 
and that it would be the major mode, or it's sometimes called Ionian mode. Uh, that's sort of the one we always think of when we think of music. You know, there's a lot of music written in the major mode. Minor gets tricky because there's natural minor, there's harmonic minor, there's melodic minor, and that's that's what you do uh, with the sixth and seventh scale degrees. Uh, but if we were talking about what's referred to in music history as sort of the natural minor, we would start on the A key and go up an octave to the other A, the A above it. That's the natural minor scale. And if we were to play in the key of D minor, because now we're transposing, it means that we have to lower this, this, that, that sixth scale degree uh, to match the intervals that we would get going from A to A. And so when we're now in the key of D minor, we have a flat to, inter to introduce into the, the scale. And the interesting thing about this particular um, composition left to us is that a key signature was not indicated. And so starting in sort of this D minor-ish uh, mode and not having, um, I use the word incorrectly, this D minor flavor, if you will, without the flat would indicate a Dorian mode. It's, it's just a different name. Other mode names include like Mixolydian, Phrygian, um, Locrian, and uh, very easily discoverable by just playing all the white notes on the keyboard going up all the notes. So Ionian, Dorian, um, Lydian, Locrian, Mixolydian, Aeolian would be the... Uh, the name for the natural minor, um, and I'm forgetting the one that goes from B to B, but those are your modes, and so you can look them up. Um, they're kind of interesting. Some, they, you know, some of them sound very uh, exotic. We really don't have that here in box music. It's just the fact that in the score they left out the the key signature, um, which means that when B flat appears. You're supposed to see it right before the note in the music as opposed to at the very beginning saying all Bs will be flatted. Um, so that's that's where the, it gets this nickname, but essentially it's it's in D minor. However, there are some some common things between the toccata and a toccata would be uh, you know akin to a prelude. If we're talking box well-tempered clavier, the preludes and fugues, the toccata and the fugues. But when we're on the organ, Bach really, you know, the well-tempered clavier are sort of like miniatures on a small keyboard. This is, this is the big leagues. Um, and you think of the audience, though, the connection there. So if you're playing the, um, the D minor prelude and fugue from book one of the well-tempered clavier, who's hearing it, right? It's not an audience of 200 at Carnegie Hall. It's, you know... A small group of people. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's, maybe you know, you are pecking it out on the clavichord, the very soft instrument in your home, so that you are learning technique. Um, and yet, this this piece of music would have had an audience, right? It's destined for a very large, expensive instrument. It's going to be heard by potentially several hundred people. Um, it's going to be loud. It's going to, you know, it's a showpiece, and so. 
the scale of a piece like this is much grander than what we would hear in something, again, from the well-tempered clavier. But Toccata comes in Italian, it's to touch, it's sort of the warming up piece, but Bach really doesn't, he doesn't treat it that way. I mean, if, like, if you're not warmed up before you play this Toccata, something's wrong because your fingers are going to curl, you know, make knots. It's a big piece. And what's interesting about it is that it seems that Bach is um, thinking about or has been engaged with concerto writing. And so it's interesting. Um, it's, it's a number of BWV numbers away, but he made arrangements of Italian concertos for keyboard. And we believe he did this as sort of a study exercise, like, Okay, here's somebody gives him Vivaldi's uh, concertos, some concertos from the Lest Romanico, Opus 3, which would have been published, I think, around uh, 1710, maybe. And so Bach gets his hands on it, and this would have been the ripe time for Bach to be composing and have a need for all his organ music. And I just, I just think it's so interesting in this Toccata that there are these concerto-like elements. When we hear the opening, it's going to almost sound like the opening of a concerto for strings and then the registration changes and now we're in like sort of this more intimate um restatement of of the theme that we hear that opens this thing up and it's like the solo part and it's not strict but there's definitely uh sort of that flavor that we get from the difference between re-piano and solo that's reflected in this opening toccata. It's energetic, it's big, it arrests your attention, and it just keeps going. Uh, the other thing that reminds me of a concerto in this, and especially if we're thinking of Vivaldi, so one of the techniques that uh, composers had would be to introduce theme and then to kind of spin it off, if you will, and have uh, sort of, um, you take a motive and you repeat it. What's changing there is the harmony behind that little motive. And so the motive is, is skipping around for on the keyboard, skipping around the keyboard. Um, and the Baroque era had these sort of def- some very common harmonic progressions. Um, there are only so many that you could really have. I mean, there's there's a formula that you sort of if you study music theory and and you're looking at the music from this period specifically, um, composers would have like these favorite chord progressions. If you listen to Corelli, for instance, he's got these very, what I call classical chord progressions, these very nicely wrought um, series of chords, basically, that are written out for strings. And one of the most famous that Vivaldi went to time and time again is the descending fifths sequence. And so if you're looking at the bass line, uh, you're basically going down fifths until you get back to your original note. So if we were starting, let's say in this key, we're starting in D, then we go down to A, and then we go to C, to G, and we would keep going back and forth. And that progression of harmonies, especially in the minor mode, and especially when we are using suspensions and adding sevenths to it, 
it's this very rich, rich, almost satisfying harmonic progression. And Bach inserts it in here. So after a little bit after we get the introduction and everything, he's like, okay, now we're just going to kind of take a motive here and play with it harmonically. Let's let's throw in one of these um, harmonic progressions that hey, the the Italians really like this. So again, it just reminds me once again if if you've if you were listening to Vivaldi or studying Vivaldi, and uh, it's not surprising then to see something like that inserted into here. Uh, and you know when you hear it, it's 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 progression that we hear in um, uh, probably the most famous and and extrovert example would be the the first movement of Vivaldi's uh, Winter. Uh, and that just follows that that sequence. So we hear it in here. When we get to the fugue, which we heard uh, already, the example I'm going to give you for the fugue um, is another Tan Kutman, and he recorded a little bit later in his career, uh, in the 90s. He sat down and recorded all of Bach's organ works, a major project, uh, which you think of it, he's... He's probably uh, already started the recording project that began with Honorato uh, with all of Bach's uh, cantatas, and now he's also re trying to record all of the organ works. Um, major on taking, right? So um, his set was recorded for Teldec, uh, their, their sort of historically informed uh, label, Das Alte Werk. Um, it's, it's a really nice set. I started collecting them individually when they came out, and then I stopped, and I eventually got the, uh, the full set uh, that was released. Uh, again, big undertaking. Uh, the, he's not the only one to, to do it all, but uh, he's one of my favorites, and it is one of my favorites, number one, because I like his playing, but number two, he specifically went after um, recording on different historical instruments. And so we sort of, sort of get that... Um, the flavor and sound world that would have been, uh, in some cases, conversant to Bach uh, in his time. The recording's interesting, and the reason why I started with the fugue is because Kutman's technique uh, has evolved somewhat. Um, and some people don't like it. He's a little fussy. He adds a lot of ornamentation, but I think it's... Um, to me, it's refreshing. It's it's sort of like, do you want still wine or do you want sparkling wine? And that's that's how I kind of equate the difference. It's a little fizzy. It's like uh, you know, if you go to Italy and they order water, you're going to say, hey, I want I want it natural or I want frizzante, and that's how I think of um, Koopman's playing. And so when you hear uh, the fugue, uh, I want you to think back to what you heard originally here in this podcast episode, which was uh, sort of more of his. Um, uh, by the books reading uh, from that early 80s recording on archive. I want to do something different in this podcast. Instead of like playing you know, multiple versions of everything, because, it, again, it's a big piece, and really the devil is in hearing how Bach puts it all together, I thought instead we would, we would present uh, two different performers, one for the Toccata, one for the Fugue, and then I would sort of talk you through some of the interesting parts as we hear them. Um, and so the first example, we're going to hear from the Toccata, which uh, if I had to choose between the two, is my 
favorite of the pair. It's just a, it's just a big, bold piece of music. Um, is a gentleman who I became uh, aware of more recently. Um, he has appeared on a number of episodes of the Olive Bach Project. If you do not know about this, um, stop listening right now because, frankly, their stuff rivals anything I'm going to contribute here in a podcast uh, for reals. Uh, this is a project by the Netherlands Bach uh, society. Um, don't know off the top of my head a lot of history behind the organization, but they've been around for a while and they must have gotten some money <laughs> because they have uh, started a recording campaign to try and record all of Bach's music, um, which, again, huge, huge undertaking. And especially if you consider their uh, timetable. So each week they release uh, a piece by Bach. Um, and they cheat a few times by giving you, like when they did the, um, the inventions, they, they released multiples at a time. Of course, those are little small pieces. But um, So most, most recently I, I heard, uh, for instance, the French Suite Number 5. And what's What's so fascinating about the project is that the video quality is so so well done. And this is not a paid, I'm sure they'll take your money if you want to donate it, but this is not a paid uh, enterprise. This is uh, These are available for free and uh, just incredibly well done. I've been so impressed with the quality of the musicians, and even though some of them are not well known to me, uh, they... Uh, you know, I haven't heard anything that disappointed me. Certainly, there may have been a few where I said, well, I have a recording I like better, but um, they're all very well done. And so, uh, Leo von Dosselar um, is one of their organists that they go back to. And uh, he uh, he's recorded not only the music, and you get to see him playing the organ, which for me is always fascinating to actually see the performers playing the music. But he... Um, they also produce interviews. And so you'll have uh, the performers, such as Leo, talking through what makes these pieces interesting. Um, but the cinematography and the, the photography in general the, of these videos is really well done. They try to capture the spaces where they are recorded. Uh, they, they spend a lot of time on the performers themselves. So this recording doesn't come from that project. It comes from a recording that I've... Um, uh, drawn from before, the title of the album is Bach, Bach and Luther. The main ensemble for the CD is Musica Amphion, uh, which is uh, Peter um, Peter John Belder, who uh, is a keyboard player, and it's a recording of um, Bach cantatas. And I, I highlighted in this one the Unsergat. Uh, BWV 80 uh, cantata. And so what's unique about it is they try to, when it says Bach in context, something stamped on the front of the label, they're trying to give you um, not just the cantata by itself, but some of the um, 
contextual music. And so if we were at church, let's say at St. Thomas's, we might have heard um, uh, the, the Dorian, Toccata, and Fugue, and then gone into um, the cantata. That's, that's, that's why they're combined here. Um, but it's, so it's not a CD just of organ music, but it's, it, there's a few organ pieces included uh, in that release. That came out in 2015. Um, so it's, it's a somewhat recent recording. And let's give it a listen. So Bach opens up with this theme, right? And then he transfers it down to lower parts. That, that moving motif is happening in uh, the pedal, right? Okay, now we're closing again. So now you for the introduction. Now we're kind of nice and small. I picture this like the concertino, if it was a concerto. Restatement of that motif. Dun, 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 dun. Here we go again, main theme. Now we get variation with har harmony. Here's this descending fifth sequence. What I really like about this recording is... Um, Mr. Vonselier is not uh, shying away from a nice, strong pedal uh, registration. It really kind of cuts through and gives some um, meat to the harmony there. Here we go again with the uh, harmonic sequence. Perpetual motion keeps going, right? Now we're in that sort of concertino, the little uh, smaller sound there. A little more intimate. Kind of interplay between two voices. Bass. He's got these descending uh, scales. Here's the main theme again. Bach definitely is relying upon uh, his uh, genius with counterpoint here. Keep bringing back the theme. sequence here with the motive da, 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 da. we've heard this music before now but he's changed changed things a little bit the other thing I like is uh, it's sort of forecasting the fugue so the busy stuff is underneath but on the top which is easier for our ear to hear he's got sort of these long stretches now he's got the long stretches down in the in the pedal but 
Those long stretches to me remind me of sort of that broad theme that we're going to get into the fugue. Here's yet another sequence. Are we good again? So back and forth. Sort of closes it. Now we bring back in the full orchestra. Sort of our counter theme, if you will, our secondary theme. Always playing back and forth. It's like cat and mouse. And that's it's really the only way to keep this perpetual stuff going, right? Is to, is to have two lines that are constantly sort of chasing each other. progression so the musical material is interesting it's not terribly rich it's he's just stretching it out and we think again about a toccata and, and the idea of warming up the fingers it's 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 really a workout right because it's it's in our, my right hand it's in my left hand it's in my feet We have that trill before we heard on the top. Now he's sort of closing things down. We get this long pedal point. We we're sort of leading up to it with some others, but here we it's just da 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 da. So kind of interesting. It's it's a warm up. It's clearly establishing the key. He really, you know, he really drives that home. Um, and at the end, it's sort of like, okay, enough, 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 but a big piece. And you can only imagine that if you are in the, um, have any context. Again, it's hard for us to, to imagine this, but because either one of us could sit down right now and pull out music from 300 year period and say, well, of, of course, uh, this earlier piece written in 16, you know, 62 forecasts what's going to happen here in 1730. And, uh, you know, everybody wouldn't have had that context. But uh, if you think of maybe the church being, um, as it's probably thought today, as a conservative uh, institution where tradition is alive and, uh, you know, things don't change maybe as quickly as they do out in the real world um, outside the church. You know, th this is a place where people had some expectations for how music would go. We do know that Bach, uh, more than once, was criticized, uh, at least when he gets to Leipzig, for his music making, that, that uh, it's a little bit too much out there. And... Uh, this is one of those pieces that I think uh, is a splendid piece of music, but it does have me question what, what would have been the reaction to hearing something like this. Uh, you know, when I when I've been to church uh, in the in the 20th century and would sit in a in a church and hear a piece of music, you know, nothing was ever performed uh, in in the Protestant tradition where I was to to where it shocked you 
you know, I mean, um, in some cases it might have been a piece by Bach, but nobody nobody played the the piece like this, you know, the um, a five minute toccata and then followed by you know a fugue that's going to take uh, you know, maybe maybe ten twelve minutes to to hear. So um, I think this would have been a very progressive piece in its time, uh, especially when we get to the ending there. It's he's really playing on some dissonance there which uh, we're going to hear now in the fugue. third entrance of the fugue theme. He could have given us the entrance of another theme. Uh, there it is. This is not an easy theme to sing, I think because of its sort of long-winded uh, statement that it's, it's easy to hear. So he's introducing some counter theme, counter subject in here, which is interesting. Already we're starting hearing a little bit of crunch. Uh, we're hearing a little bit of uh, some dissonance. Theme is still present. Top, top voice. sequence there. Gotta love Kutman if he introduces it keeps it going. There it is again. now. So Bach is sort of taking us into some new harmonic territory, at least it sounds like he was trying to. Now into the major mode. Interesting, huh? 
It's like a whole slightly different world. It's like the sunshine's come out a little bit. Nice cadence, but keeps going. Again, uh, I think one of the things that makes Koopman's uh, sort of extrovert, extrovertedness with, with the uh, ornamentation is that it seems to work in a context like this where the theme is, is broad and long. So here we get into that crunch again of kind of changing keys. We are now back into a minor mode. So we traversed into the major, now we're back into the minor. So as a listener, I'm, I'm constantly reaching for and trying to, to fixate upon the theme. And Bach is being very kind to us. He's keeping it omnipresent. Uh, the texture is a little thinner. That entrance, whoa, that one we just heard in the soprano is stretching our sense of key here. Now we get the chromaticism introduced, which is a sure sign that Bach is trying to take us somewhere else harmonically. Whoa, just cuts away, says, let's get there. Now we're in more familiar territory. Hear the theme in the bass. But we're in a different key. So we sort of heard this material before, but we're somewhere else. We've gone somewhere. Now we got a little harmonic progression. We get that trill, but the, where is the trill, right? It's in the bottom. Again, familiar territory. Frequency notes here got a little faster, right? We're not this nice big broad theme. A little bit of chasing going on, if you will, which uh, again is something we we heard in the toccata. So there's sort of a thematic idea that's brought across. And Bach is now gearing up for the end. And to get there, he's sort of got to jump out of this perpetual restatement of the theme. We're back in the home key but he's got to really sell it. He's got to really, mm, there's that pedal point. And of course, to do the cadence, we get that nice sort of long, emphatic, we've, re we've reached the end. And in so many times, it's satisfying, us, satisfying to us to uh, introduce what uh, would be called the Picardy Third, where 
uh, a piece in the, in the minor mode ends and um, the, the raised third degree of the scale is introduced so that we end on a major chord versus the minor. So I hope, I've never done this before right, where I kind of just give you open commentary to hear the whole thing, but I hope this was interesting. Um, I hope you were hearing some of the things that I heard. Uh, it was a little unscripted, but uh, I think it's a way to sort of to uh, to hear some of the things in the music. Probably uh, the shortcoming of a podcast when looking at box music, especially when we consider counterpoint and theme, the entrance of themes and counter subjects and harmonic progressions and things like that. Uh, we can hear it, but it really does take a trained ear to pick up on some of that. And um, there are certainly those of you out there that that may have better ears than I do. Uh, but typically when we're trying to study this music, um, what I did when I was in school was to have a textbook in front of you and uh, either one of two things would happen. They would give you a musical excerpt in, in the textbook and say, well, now look at this. We've been talking about this. Here's an example of it. But it's a very shallow, small example. Or they would say, um, you know, they would talk about the entire piece, but they would expect you to go have the score somewhere. And for those of us that don't read music, um, that, that can be tough. But music is, musical notation, at least from Bach's time, is a very iconic um, representation, right? So you have a staff, you have notes on the staff, and they represent degrees of the scale. And you literally can take a piano keyboard, as an example, and turn it on its side and line it up with the notes. And so if you go into a sequencer program, let's say on a computer, uh, that typically is the display we get is, is not of the keyboard, but something called piano roll notation. And so the dots on, the, on that piano roll indicate which notes are sounding when. I always, I always find that notation a little bit lacking because while it does line up in theory to a piano keyboard on the side of your computer screen, um, the intervals between are somewhat hard to distinguish uh, unless the software is drawing lines across, um, sort of mimicking a staff. However, if you actually look at the music and you can see patterns, and that's what our eyes go to is, is seeing patterns, uh, it is somewhat easy to sort of light up the themes as they happen. And so... Uh, there's been quite a few great instructional videos that I found on YouTube of people taking apart, you know, big pieces like the musical offering, BWV 1079 from Bach, and, and putting colors on it. And the, the ones with like the crab cannon and the, uh, the mirror cannons and things like that from, from that work um, where they're bending, you know, they have skills on the computer to show you how the pieces are put together that far exceed my skills. Uh, those are kind of interesting. And I wish we could could have that. I keep thinking in the back of my mind as we work towards this project, the Bachcast project. I really um, wanted to just highlight some of my favorite pieces of Bach, give you some access to recordings. Don't want to get overly into the music itself. All that is the classic way to appreciate this. I'm looking more at the performance. And in this example. I really liked both these performances. I, I like Koopman's introduction as well, but I, I love the sound of the instrument we heard in the Toccata. This fugue I like because of Koopman's um, sort of, as I said, frizzante style, adding, adding some extra notes in there. 
which seems to spice it up or add some effervescence to it. And I think in this piece, especially because we have these long notes in the theme, um, when he is able to introduce those ornaments in one voice and then it gets uh, passed, if you will, to another voice back and forth, and you can hear those ornaments again, it just helps our ear hear that in much the same way if we were looking at the music on a screen or on a piece of paper and could actually see uh, the phrases enter. Um, and so I'll end there. I, I hope this was an interesting experiment. If you'd like to drop me an email, you can find out uh, more about this piece, about our podcast episodes, music reviews, on the website. It's bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.